Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Watches His Dark Materials, Series 2, Episode 4, Tower of the Angels. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana, and I appreciate Chloe's commitment to saying Series 2 instead of Season 2. Listen, I know I, I was... This is a big confession, and it may not come as a shock because I've mentioned it very often recently, but I was... A Whovian, a, a Doctor Who fan, a Doctor Who stan, the kids would say. Uh, I don't need to tell you how extreme of a Whovian I was. I was not a super Whulock. I was not one of those kids, but I was very into Doctor Who, and I was very good at calling it series then, so I can change. I I can learn old tricks. I don't know if I can change. I'm trying. I'm trying to do this, you know, to be inclusive. You know, I already have my accent and my perspective and saying series two is a good compromise i suppose that's uh that's globalism <laughs> right when i say series two. Oh my god series two. Oh, you better settle down there's only gonna be one currency by the end it's of this basically episode. a trade agreement to be honest it's basically <laughs> nato uh hey and that is why our defense budget is so large oh, because wow. we deal with a lot of the stuff for nato eliana <laughs> but we'll talk about defense budgets actually we literally will be mentioning yes. them in this episode yes. first we have some housekeeping to do some very quick minor housekeeping we'll start it off with the announcement of this month's special patron episode eliana what is our patreon special episode tell me what it is tell tell everyone at home if they were a patron of ours in the stranger tier and above, what would they expect? I am so excited for this episode, and I think it's very- I know, I know, I know. It's so special. All right, so uh, enough, enough uh, drum roll. We are going to be analyzing the music of, especially season, series two. Good commitment. Good commitment. <laughs> of His Dark Materials with Matt and Holly from The Dust- podcast and they are experts on music so you know what if you want a more in-depth look especially as things are going on like go check them out but they they will be joining us for our patreon episode to be talking about you know how the how the music intersects with the story and all the different like devices that i'm so excited yeah i think we're gonna choose a good handful of moments to talk about across the show and a couple of different musical motifs i'm excited to nerd out with matt a little bit and with holly and you know we've actually been really good friends with them just in online kind of acquaintance right since the old game of thrones Uh a song of ice and fire wars uh but matt has a blog where he discussed the episodes as they came out on game of thrones on his audio review blog and Holly, of course, is very prevalent, very prevalent in what we call Twitteros. So it's great to see them in Twittergaze and really excited to get them onto our Patreon. So that should be out toward the end of the month. We'll have a better look at that as we get past the holiday. We will also be having a special guest on for our Series 2 His Dark Materials finale, and we'll be announcing that soon, soon in the future. Stay tuned for that. And that date for that episode will also be to be announced. It might not be on our usual Monday, but we will make sure to put out a reminder and let you know as we get closer. We are going to try to put it out that day, but we are doing what we can. And (laughs) as Chloe said, we will keep you all, of course, abreast of not only the date of release, but also at some point. I'm excited for this guest also. I'm just excited for all of our guests. We we were just joined uh, this week by our friend Quinn from Quinn's Ideas for our Song of Ice and Fire 
coverage. So it's a good month. Keep the good streak going. Yes. Keep the good streak going. Dust December. Dust December. Oh my god, yes. It is Dust December. Maybe we we should call the episode that. Maybe. I'm, I'm into it. I might be into it. That might be what we call it, Dust December. Oh. Well, stay tuned. Oh. We'll announce that soon. But there's more gifts. Speaking of, uh, the next thing to deliver to your doorstep is that we will have a LaBelle Sauvage episode out a little early for you, a little before some holiday shenanigans this month. Episode 4 of La Belle Sauvage, The Books of Dust, will be out for public on December 18th. The chapters are still to be announced, but we'll let you know which ones we're covering very soon. They are dense chapters, yep. and of course, La Belle Sauvage, as many of you have heard, is the prequel-ish book to His Dark Materials. So if you are following and a fan of His Dark Materials and have not picked up The Books of Dust, La Belle Sauvage is the first of The Book of Dust uh, trilogy. Yeah, it's a companion trilogy, as they call it. A sandwich trilogy. A sandwich. If you've read La Belle Sauvage, uh, you'll be familiar with our discussions if you're listening along with us, where we talk and spoil the other book of Dust, which is The Secret Commonwealth. Eliana's not quite finished with it yet, but she is en route. She is on the route. She's on the move. It's an infuriating journey. It is an infuriating, frustrating route that stops and pisses you off and then it gets good it gets so good for a second you're like okay okay and then it does something else stupid and that's okay it's a good book though ish there's some stuff so we'll get into that eventually i can't wait to cover those with you but in our labelle sauvage episodes bit by bit eliana's having these ideas and i'm like wow yeah but we do things a little different here right for our television coverage so for spoilers because, you know, they are playing things interestingly and doing some great groundwork and foreshadowing in the television series. There's a lot of benches everywhere, as people have pointed out. We are covering and spoiling anything from the entire main trilogy, any of the, the three books from His Dark Materials as we discuss these television episodes. And maybe light hints at the Book of Dust, but nothing too spoilery. And we are not going to have... And we do also cover some information... From the three small novellas, which are Lyra's Oxford, Once Upon a Time in the North, and Serpentine, which was, you know, I think heavily alluded to in one of the previous episodes with Dr. Lincelius. So we are going to be talking about that, but there is probably not going to be a discussion, right, which is more of uh, in our book coverage where we read along with the books as they go and then cover things later, so... Yeah, so we're getting toward the middle end of Series 2, which means we're not far from Series 3. We're already seeing some minor Amber Spyglass themes coming to the screen. I'm sure we're going to see a handful more moving forward. It seems some plots are going to accelerate, so why not dig in? Eliana, what was your favorite part? I've been dying to know. Okay, so I think my favorite part is actually, I think, a little more serious this time. I as you all know, have been just waiting for Mr. Paradisi this entire <laughs> season. And I love the moment where, you know, Will kind of, like, falls into him. They played a little differently with the, you know, he, he realizes his fingers were cut right away as opposed to in the books. And then Mr. Paradisi also sees it, and you see that significance, and it's... And then he tells... He realizes what it means, and he's like, fight, boy, fight! And then will comes in and like does his <laughs> boxing and i'm like but like the the mr paradisi just like connecting with him in that moment and rooting for him like yes yes 
the bearers yeah. together. That's my favorite part. How about you, Chloe? Well, I would like to say I love that because that scene, I, I know one of our buddies on our Discord over at our patron Discord, Pete, he was kind of a little bummed out. He was like, well, it was a little kiddish. It was a little kid's play. But it was also fun because it was totally like, you know, karate kid style moment. Like, oh, you're now the one. You're the bearer. Get in there. Go get your destiny, kid. Fight. And, like, you have these bloodied stumps on your hands and just get in there. It felt like there was a little cheese to it, but I felt like it was necessary cheese. You know what I mean? Like, it's what you expect from your youth fantasy. Of course, this is the way it's adapted. And I think it worked really well with the environment of the tower. I thought it was good. I mean, I think that the way that, you know, we'll discuss some more, Tulio came in, I was like, wait. <laughs> but, like, yeah. I all in all, like, the fight scene was really good, well choreographed. I'm sure, like, I don't know how often, like, any of them have done action scenes so like this is a really exciting you know for them as young actors mm-hmm. in my opinion well we know that we know that Daphne Keene has a lot of experience with action scenes yeah and I loved her and Logan so it was a good standout moment absolutely for our young William yes and, okay and and semi-young Tulio semi-young oh not for younger long. than me Poor Tulio I really worry about that kid Eliana would say I do I'm worried about a lot of kids. Well, my favorite part, Eliana, is actually connected to you. Wow. I'm worried about me. I'm worried about you too all the time. But you know, no, this is, it was so weird. So I saw the episode before you. We had just recorded last week's episode. Uh, So the previous episode, episode three, we had just recorded and I went and I was so happy to go get on my merry way and watch the episode. And I think you went to go eat some food because you were starving. And so I watched the episode and Mary's talking to the computer, a.k.a. to Zephania, as we'll come up and talk about. And Metatron's cube flashes on the screen. And literally like three weeks prior, two weeks prior, you had sent me a message asking if I knew about Metatron's cube and like giving me a minor explanation about it. And I looked it up and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And you just brought it up randomly, and it came on screen, and I freaked out. It was so exciting. It is a mystical, three-dimensional cube that was used by the Archangel Metatron to watch over the flow of energy connecting Earth and the Divine, and it basically is the building blocks of creation in all physical matter. That's what it depicts. So it was really exciting just to see a Metatron reference. No, we'll uh, we'll leave that for series three for more of that because that's going to be fun to come. But to see a Metatron reference so early in the show, yeah, mind blown. Mind is blown. It was, yeah. So you had said to me, like you asked me, you were like, "What? What was that thing that you said again?" <laughs> I sent you the picture. I was like, "Isn't this a Metatron's cube?" And you're like, "Yeah." I was like, "Just making sure, double checking." <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "Yeah." Totally. And then I was like, interesting that she's asking me. And then I watched the episode and I saw it. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's why. And so actually, the (laughs) way that I learned about Metatron's cube is very fascinating. Of course, we know Metatron from the book three. But so I was here opening up, right, my, again, HBO season two. Not this again. Uh, Not fucking this again giveaway box that I paid for with all of my personal identifying information and giving it to a random link on Twitter that I replied to and went um, and unprotected my tweets for just a brief moment so I could get that box and I want my blanket 
I just want my blanket. I'm not like trying to be a bitch about it. It's just, I actually kind of got a little worked up last week when you were describing how nice it was to watch the episode with your blanket and your popcorn while Lyra and Pan had popcorn. And I was just like, I didn't get to watch the episode from my blanket. So I entered, they said I won and it never came. I'm so sorry still. And it is blanket weather now. And you know, you might have had great insights like me had you gotten this giveaway box because within the giveaway box again were these three boxes of candy I'm not the only one who got this at least like what 600 other people in the united states or something right how many boxes do they have something like that got this and they had these these three little plastic cubes filled with candy and one had a bunch of, again, gummy bears that were kind of like polar bears. One had a bunch of little gummy rainbows, and I'm a sucker for that shit. It's the Aurora Borealis. I'm all about summer gummies, sour gummies. That's my thing. And then one of them was full of these little, like, cookie dough balls covered in chocolate. And I thought that was maybe, like, reminiscent of dark matter. And especially because mm. it was in this cube. And so I was Googling things around dark matter and cubes. And I actually had confused it with... A different idea, which has to do with, I think, cubic crystalline structure, which had nothing to do with this. But that's what was the <laughs> image in my head. And I was, like, mixing up ideas by accident. But what I did see as I was searching was this term Metatron's cube. And I was like, that seems significant. And then that it came up in this episode feels like it really paid off. Thank you, HBO Candy Box. It is, in <laughs> fact, a specter killer, a pun that I thought I came up with and did not. <sighs> yeah, no, I'm glad it led to your happiness. That's all that matters to me. So that was my favorite There's moment. Your happiness while you're wrapped up in your blanket, eating your Metatron's candy with your Metatron's cubes. <laughs> Hope you have fun. Hope you enjoyed your popcorn. Thank Paddington. You. I did. I... Dude, the... Oh, wait, there was another significant Paddington thing that someone pointed out. We should bring yes, it, it was. Uh... Turns out this is like way more significant than we all thought. On October 30th, before the entire series even, series two, before the entirety of series two even aired, Edu Cabanas on Twitter tweeted a picture of Paddington Bear with his like fucking little red hat and then like blue jacket thing and holding a briefcase and Lyra wearing an almost the exact same outfit from series one. When yeah, when she was in Trollicent, right? Yes. And I was like, yeah. what? Mind blown. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So Metatron's cube ain't shit. Like, don't. It's all about nothing. Paddington. It's not Paddington. Yeah. Dude, he knew. I didn't even know, like, <sighs> Paddington was just so significant. I love uh, that they commit to some bits. We commit to bits, but I love when they do. It publicly commit to bits. I love that. So Eduardo Cabanas's tweet is in Portuguese, but they're saying, guys, I know my obsession with Paddington is a little out of control and I'm glad that it is. But I also <laughs> am like, I didn't know that there were obsessions with Paddington also. So. Well, that's what we're about to get into if we watch Paddington. So maybe when we're bereft of this series, when we're missing it, we'll get into it. Yeah. I want to preface this episode and just say that I know I went into seeing this episode with some low feelings. It wasn't like, I don't think I was really disappointed, disappointed. I just 
wasn't feeling the last episode on first watch and it got better the second or third time that I watched that episode three but I went into episode four after my first watch where I was just like okay I was whelmed it was an episode it was good but I was whelmed and I went into episode four and oh my god this episode knocked me on my ass this episode took me out to dinner made me dance the whole entire night and then it took me home and let me just tell you we slammed that bedroom door oh, shut wow. okay like this episode night we even got a little lewd which we'll talk about we did <laughs> this yes this episode uh, this intro this intro is amazing we started with Zephania and she's narrating the knife's history and we're seeing the knife being forged we're seeing this glowing ember uh, it's amazing we even see some floating dust beautiful yeah it, it feels very much like a video game opening narration which oh i'm into that <laughs> that works for me but it did feel a i thought of the dark souls opening and it's definitely not at all really like that but in a way it kind of is in vibes i guess it's a lord of the rings kind of feel yeah. people have said too right with the forging uh it's very similar shot wise i guess but uh, dark souls too Eliana, it's very Dark Souls as well. Of course. You know, me, my <laughs> Dark Soul. Um, but yes, of course, we get a lot of great backstory. Some of it is a little more detailed, right, than in the books, which is 300 years ago that the philosophers created the knife, which can cut through worlds. It's tucked away in the Torre degli Angeli. It was used for greedy purposes. And then, interestingly, they, they give this and kind of draw that connection very linearly that it released the specters. And they wait for the true wielder of the knife to save them all. We get a really beautiful shot of Chidigatse. It's a, a haunting shot. It's just, it's this dark aerial pan over the city with these glowing lights and the specters are creeping around like ghosts, ghastly smoke. It's amazing. Really beautiful, really detailed. There, there's a really cool slow zoom too on this miniature of Chitigatse that's sitting in the tower, obviously. Like, it's very obviously a miniature of the entire city, but it's in the tower. So it's kind of like a little inception-y for a second. And we get a few more details that are handed to us. Like, there's a book that they go through, and we see about two pages. The first page of the book has some scroll work, and the details show a page that has the mark of the bearer as kind of a logo within a sunburst. Uh, there's a bird that looks kind of like an eagle, almost like Jopari's Osprey, and below it, there's a crescent moon turned upward, and a banner. And the banner, I want you to know I got played. I was really interested in the banner. You know me, I take things too far. I'm like, let me go in on this detail and zoom in and try to read something that there's no reason for me to read it. Like, if I was good at math and science, uh, Joel Collins, the designer, design director, you know, he did a Q&A, and I asked, what were some of the equations that were on the board that you could see and he was like oh some are just like graffiti you know some are just like nothing and i'm like if i knew math and science if i was a scholar i would have wasted a lot more time on that but i make other people waste their time on it <laughs> that's what i do <laughs> like everyone help <laughs> well i got played this time i figured it out and i think it's from the lorem ipsum uh, or from a generator of it, which is dummy text from the printing and typesetting industry. It's been the industry's standard dummy text since like the 1500s. An unknown printer took a galley of type and scrambled it and made a specimen book. And it survived like only five centuries, but then leaped into electronic typesetting. And it basically has, it's gone unchanged. There's a few 
versions of it that have gotten changes and like little pieces of humor added in, but it's basically garbage text. However, there are some words here that I was trying to decode. So what I was trying to decode, and I'm rubbish. I can't do Latin. That's your job, Eliana, just what? so you I, know, usually. And you're Latin. not good either. You're not great either, but I'm just saying you're better than I am. Uh, but so the words I could kind of make out were bamoda, which is Portuguese for good, but there is no other. The, 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 the words break apart, maybe. Again, this doesn't matter because I got played. Uh there's Mecenas is one, which is of Italian and patron of the arts or sometimes seen as benefactor, but also could mean angel, depending on its use, I found, which I was like, oh, so at least that was like a less random word. There's Pecumsar, which has Latin roots meaning to feed or nourish, and then Lecus, which is Latin for hole or opening. So, I mean, they had something going on. It could have been about, you know, cutting open holes, angels, yada, yada. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know, but I got played. It's all just fake <laughs> words. I mean, just fake words. Speaking of people getting played, you know, at the other episode we were discussing, because my partner raised the question, how did Lord Boreal find out about the knife, right? And we were all like, yeah, it could have worked out like this. And then turns out, like, they showed it to us. And I just forgot that one of the priests, one of the fathers told him in the magisterium. Yeah. And we see it in that flashback right before the episode. And I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> That's right, that happens, so. Anyway. <laughs> hey, that's life, you know what? And we're having fun, and that's what we matters. We are having fun. Uh, but you know who's not having fun? Angelica's father, maybe, probably. Who's getting attacked by the specters in a scene as well. Yeah, assumedly that's who it is. So, bummer, sad, you see her standing there. I think we see Paula kind of blurred out next to her. I feel bad that Paula hasn't gotten as much screen time. I know, I'm surprised at that too. It makes sense, but I'm just like, where are, well, we'll get into more where are the children soon, because I'm feeling like that is empty for me, but I digress. First the intro. And then we skyrocket away after that, and we get to Will and Lyra watching the tower, trying to figure out how to get into it. Yes. We catch Will's eye, he's watching the tower slash watching Tulio in the tower, uh, and it's interesting, there's these overlaying, the window design has these circles that are overlaying on each other, and they uh, remind me of the worlds stacked together in the intro. Yes, definitely. And, you know, again, love the design of the tower, and there's a lot of thought and detail going into all of that. Uh, we also spoke about Tessellations and MC Asher in previous episodes and its impact on the design of the city. And I think that comes through, there's a, there's actually a very clearly like tessellating pattern on these like iron fences on the balcony that Will and Lyra are on. Very, very clearly quite like that. So love that. Uh, then we move over to Lee Scoresby searching for Stanislaus Grumman. Yes, big LaBelle Sauvage vibes for a hot second from that start, mm. right? You see him cruising down the water as Demon gets to the front of the boat. We get a great but chilling shot of the Alamo Gulch, right? Aerial shot, really nice. Uh, and Hester gives us this line. I was like, shut up, Hester. She goes, you know what they say? A dead end is a new beginning. That's not what they say, and that is not what this is, first of all, at all. <laughs> <laughs> Closing time. <laughs> time for. Uh, actually, I'm really bad with lyrics, Robert. <laughs> you tried. I did, I did, but not very hard. Uh, they dock and then they meet Cyan Kator, who's going to guide them to Grumman. And, you know, interestingly, 
foreshadowing from the previous season when I kept saying and calling him Hot Priest, right? Calling Andrew <laughs> Scott, the actor, Hot Priest, which is his name in Fleabag, the series. And you know, wouldn't you know it? His demon's voice actor is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who plays Fleabag in that series, so. And she's very elegant as an Osprey, I will totally tell you, very elegant. And I do want you to know that I did not, for a long time, understand the difference between Phoebe Bridger and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's difficult, you know, I sometimes am like, I don't listen to Phoebe Bridgers really, even though I know that I would really like her and people tell me that I would and that they're right. Mm -hmm. But their names are very similar. That's not on you. Yeah, before I knew that they were separate people and before I heard her music and understood she was an actress, I just never knew and I'm sorry for that. Yep, it's it's okay. And I don't get to forgive you, to be honest, because I have no connection <laughs> to these people whatsoever. If you know them, let them know. <laughs> well, I do have a connection to Will and Lyra, though. They are searching for the tower entrance. Pan is a moth, you know, a symbol of transition, often guided by paths of light. And he is here for sure, because Lyra is seeking the light from the Tour de l'Angelie. Boreal shows back up, and he heads over to Mary Malone's lab. Yes, Lord Boreal hopes to support Oliver and Mary's work. Mary's asleep at her desk, big mood. <laughs> and things are actually like pretty, they're pretty wrapped up on Oliver and Boreal's side when they awaken Mary accidentally. How funny, they accidentally forgot to wake her up for the meeting? Yep, even though she's the only one who knows how to make the fucking thing work. Interesting. Hmm. Some really amazing shots with Boreal here. Uh, the first shot we get of him, really, like he's staring at the cave and we see his reflection reflected in the cave, reflected in the research. Uh, and it's a new world for him, right? It's this realm of research, research that's already neatly done that he can pay for or steal. Uh, research on shadow particles. And quite obviously, he doesn't lack for money or for guile. And it's very apparent that he knows about them being shut down and knows more than they do about it also might have a hand in whether it happens or not. And I think it comes across much better in this physical translation of the conversation from book. Book alone, I don't know if it came through as well, but I think this scene was really well done. Yeah, they're doing a lot of great work adapting scenes from the book. Like, you know, once awakened from her nap, Mary is able to easily see through his empty words. You know, she can tell that something is off. And she's willing to fight Oliver on this deal, especially because she's like, I'm not trying to give this to defense funding. Like, the moment she hears that, she's like, we're done here. And she kicks Boreal out of her office. I love that a lot of Mary Malone this season is just her kicking people out of her office. And that's aspirational. Absolutely, especially when they're assholes, because Boreal... Obviously, we know how he feels about women, and we're going to talk about that a lot more this episode. But he says about Mary, because she fell asleep at her desk and she was there late, I've always admired a woman with a good work ethic. Excuse me? Yeah, I like can't tell. I'm like, are you that foolish? Like, you've been here for a while, dude. <laughs> but also right? shoot your shot. You know, like, hey, shoot your shot. That's but also interesting. It's, it's interesting that you interpreted it like that. that I didn't think about it like that, but. Um, I think he was trying to charm her also when he comes from a world where charming 
works different, like where he's coming from, like with Marisa, for example, and we see how his charms work on Marisa, where Marisa knows she has to agree to the deal to get what she wants. And Mary doesn't want to agree to anything. Like Mary's very staunch in how she feels. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like the way that they've set up a lot of the stuff in this episode. There's a lot of ideas and themes coming through and here, this exchange feels especially significant in the context of what happens in that opening introduction with Zephania talking about, like, what happened with the guild. They they found this great power in the knife, right? They had a choice of how they could use it, whether they would use it for base, greedy, greedy purposes, or whether they would use it for the good of all mankind. And they chose to use it for their own greed, and they became, like, hoarders, as we see in... in the opening and like Mary could easily do that right she could go into her ambitions as a scientist get that funding from the defense whatever give into that temptation but instead she refuses that and wants to use this powerful tool for good or at least not let it fall into the wrong hands it was conveyed well in a really swift sense and well-paced sense and uh Oliver getting a little expansion in this episode was good because he's a total dick he total is. asshole he's oh we don't like oliver in this household no he writes mary malone off and he's like you know what i just think you haven't slept in weeks mary and we love that don't we women in business uh fuck off oliver that's all i have to say about oliver but in context this feels like a microcosm of the war that is about to come uh, taking a stand for what's right, fighting for free will versus Boreal representing the guildsmen here, right? Like Boreal is absolutely a gilded magpie here. He takes what he wants when he wants it. And that clash will come as we see with the magisterium against free will. And the defense funding alone, I mean, hell, this is probably really big and it's well highlighted how they're saying it because I know the UK approved their biggest budget in November, I think, yet for defense funding. And I do know that the U.S., in like comparison, we obviously spend a bajillion dollars more, especially due to our NATO involvement and because we can't keep our heads out of everyone's assholes. But like the U.S. has $686.1 billion on their last 2019 defense budget, and $69 billion of that goes directly towards war funding. That's more money than any of us will ever see, right? Like anyone listening to this probably altogether, the sum of it, probably more than what we'll see, but... That's that's money to build weapons, right? That's what happens, and those weapons have to be made off of technology. Boreal is here to spend some of that defense budget and acquire some cheap technology to create weapons with, and Mary is quite aware that's what would happen. I mean, this is real. This is realistic. The Department of Defense and Federal Law Enforcement Agencies in the U.S. alone, including immigration, FBI, drug enforcement, they have thousands of contracts, right, with Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Dell, IBM, Hewlett-Packard, even Facebook, right? Seems innocent, but we know that's not. We talked previously when the witches faced the devastation of the bombing at the hands of the Magisterium about the Philadelphia move bombing, and to me that stands out so much because no matter the stance people had held on the group move, all other activist groups stood beside them because governments, when they acquire this technology, they use it to enslave the world. Normal humans can't fight back against bombs or other warfare being created from academic knowledge that the average person isn't granted to obtain, right? Like the people that end up in this higher position of giving this technology away aren't always as staunch as Mary. Some of them just sign it away for money. 
Yeah. And I mean, Mary is able to, to, is privileged, right? In that she can say like no to such a big deal, right? When it comes to her career and her livelihood. But I absolutely, and I think that's such a testament to Mary's character. And also like, she knows, right? What's this machine is capable of. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the classic movie Paycheck, which I don't know if anyone watched except for me. I actually really liked that movie, which I also was like probably a child when I watched it, so that sets the bar of my expectations. But, mm-hmm. um, or not just, I don't know what year it came out. Either way, I was really young. But the point is, like, it, it reminds me of that, right? Like, of how it could be used destructively and we see that even the lithiometer right people are using it somewhat destructively as well and asking harm not harmful questions but questions for their own desires and that's absolutely what would happen with the cave used for this right yeah wrong reasons well back in chitagatse where a lot of things have happened for the wrong reasons (laughs) that was a decent segue um will and lyra still looking for how to get inside the tower find an angel insignia on the door, which is how they end up getting inside. And I thought it was really interesting the way that some of this was filmed, where Will is looking and walking along one part, and then Lyra's yelling to him from somewhere else, and suggesting that perhaps the entrance to the tower might be underground. And they're kind of separated, and the door is underground, and it kind of reminds me a little bit about uh, maybe a nod towards their eventual journey to the underworld and that window there. Yeah, she even makes a nod about it being like Jordan, doesn't she, if I recall? I want to say she makes a nod about how it's like the scholar's tomb at Jordan. Maybe Uh. I'm making that up, but I believe she says something about that, which of course, as we know, the the coin representing life and soul and yada, yada, yada. And listen, I'm getting very far on Dragon Prince as well, so we have to talk about that sometime in relation. But... I did not think about that until you said it. However, I have a bunch of other underworld things to bring up this episode, so I'm really glad that's another one. They're heavily foreshadowing Series 3 already. I love it. There's a lot. Metatron, this. Benches. uh, Benches. uh, I hate that. Listen, listen, social media account directors. We see you. Respectful work in some manners. But hurtful. Some manners are disrespectful. Yeah, some are hurtful. I don't need a bench every week, okay? I already know what's going to happen. I only have so many tissues. You know, last week we speculated that they might find a window in. We were wrong. But we we speculated. uh, And we talked about how there's this strange up and down layout, like the world's going on, right? Like almost like a subway or a sub world. Almost like disc world. I hope there's not a turtle under all of this, but this is a way down. (laughs) This obviously isn't what happened. We didn't have to use a window, but that is still the setup. Uh, they, they found a random door that works too, but our friend Zika sent us a message and she had some different ideas about it. Uh, she also thought this was really interesting and said that she was struck by the structure of the city, how vertical it is, how many levels, twists, and turns it has, and how that must have been useful for the philosophers when they first started cutting through to new worlds. We know Will experiences at least one time how cutting into a world at the wrong elevation is a stumbling block, and the complex levels of the city, and indeed the structure of the Tour de l'Angeli itself, provides a plethora of window location options to make sure you end up ground level somewhere. Could just be a happy accident, but since it came to power due to the philosopher's success, it's possible they intentionally chose the location and layout. I thought that was a really perceptive way to look at it as well. It makes sense. 
yeah, yeah. I thought I thought this was a really cool idea of that the whole city is built around it and to serve that purpose. Mm-hmm. I think it really shows just how encaptured they were by the the knife and that they could enter all these different areas. I thought that was really cool. Uh, Zika also asks, you know, how would windows end up outside the tower? Uh, maybe someone had to walk further down in order to gain safe access to certain areas, which I think, yes, absolutely. I also think that there's an aspect of, like, we get this from the opening and we also get it from Zephania later on in book three of, like, I mean, people sometimes just use it for their own purposes. They were careless. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if you have such a huge power, a lot of people, of course, they're tempted to use it. Absolutely. Well, as they enter the tower, behind them waits the smoky tendrils of the specters floating. A good sense of urgency, right? Because Will has to get this knife now. Yes, and we get to see the moors that shimmer in the air. Lee continues on to Grumman, where he hopes to find a bacon sandwich and not just a sandwich trilogy at the (laughs) other end of this journey. But first he finds a man, a man who has many names, it appears, a man with a man bun, and... (laughs) It's not just Grumman. He's also like, my name is Joppery. What the fuck is that? I'm sorry. And it makes sense, I guess, because it was probably like the pronunciation they gave John Perry. But Joppery? John Perry? I'm not sure I get it. Like, I... I, Joppery makes sense, but Joppery doesn't for me like in the sense of like how do i say this name that like kind of sounds like it could have once been this and then evolved i just have to change my whole life is my problem with it i'm not gonna change anything i refuse i'm calling it joe pari i'm still gonna call him joe pari i mean for the yeah. for the purpose of discussing in this show sure i'll call him joppery but everywhere else in my life gonna be wait joe so Perry. you're saying we are calling him joppery oh this is so confusing well you can do whatever you want I'm a follower. I don't know that I can. We say, I mean, we go between so many different pronunciations for Song of Ice and Fire, and also, like, George himself that's pronounces true. things, in my opinion, wrong. He pronounces Dothraki as Dothraki, and I'm like, that's wrong. Again, this was so, still wrong. So this was new. This was the most life-changing part for me, was that. <laughs> and Joppery had summoned Lee Scoresby with his mother's Navajo ring. Joppery asks if Lee is hungry, and they settle in for a long chat. So this is our first John Perry entrance. First official, face-to-face, happens here. He comes out of an archway, so of course he has that coming-through-a-different-world kind of look to him. And the frame of the arch is really interesting. It has these patterns of lines that touch, connect, and break apart. Kind of like worlds joining together and breaking and falling apart. Like the current state of things, but also like his journey, right? What his journey's been comprised of. I was looking up the line work to see specifically if there was anything that was perfectly inspiring for it. And I found a handful of things, but a lot of Chinese architecture and tile work that's kind of connecting these geometric lines kind of showed up in my search engine. And they're very self-contained. It reminds me a bit of the Yijing hexagrams as well. It's really prominent, uh, even in things like Chinese chess. And his jacket has so, so many cool lines on it. It has this patchwork going on. Uh, it has colors and reds and blues, uh, not unlike the multicolored fashion of Lyra's poncho, but smaller amount, more sporadic, joined together. And it's a little reminiscent of First Nations fashion, even, kind of. It just had mm-hmm. the deep colors, and I-, I thought that was really interesting, and it must be maybe just influenced with some sort of indigenous land 
But we see also where the trepanning was done, right? The scar mark is very prominent. It's in his upper right forehead. Uh, and he has a mini man bun going on. It looks real, but it also looks kind of like a clip-on. Not sure. I think it might be a clip-on, because I was wondering okay. that. And I don't know if oh we should God. be wondering that or not. But I think it is because, like, at the nape of his neck. And granted, some people, yeah. like, do that with their hair intentionally. You know, they'll have some longer and some shorter towards the nape. But, like, the nape, it's like, mm-hmm. you can see that some of his hairs are short towards there. Yep. So I think it's a clip-on. Wow, we Andrew Scott was hair. not having it. Yeah, well, I well, do. He, I'm licensed. He might not have had enough time to grow it out to be yeah. long enough for a man bun, is my guess. Right. I mean, right? no, but I'm licensed to do hair. Yeah, exactly. So, I, mean, I always think about this stuff, and I just am curious. That's all. Yeah, I am too. Andrew Scott, oh, that's a behind-the-scenes footage I want to see if it is a clip-on. Like, how do they put the clip-on man bun on? I've never seen a clip-on man bun before, you know? I have, and it does require a little hair to attach to, so I don't know. I mean, he has enough hair that I assume, you know, maybe he grew some of it out, right? He has to so that he could give himself a, like, obviously the swoop at the front. Mm -hmm. That's what I was looking at, too. But it's not quite long enough to accommodate a man bun. Yeah. Yeah. Not of that volume. Unless they really ratted it. Like, I'm talking, they had to really tease it and smooth it and tease it and smooth it. And that thing... If you look at it up close, I'm just saying it it could be hosting something. Also, I haven't seen any images of Andrew Scott where he has long hair. So that's part of why yeah, yes, you know, I yes. assume during the course of filming we would have seen it or something. Hey, you know? there is no shame in a weave. I'm just saying, Andrew Scott, was it a clip-on? Let us know. Give us a ring. Yes. Girlsconcanon <laughs> at gmail.com. Eliana, get ready to bleep out my phone number. It's beep. Beep, 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 Text me. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. So now that we've discussed his hair in depth, I, I do want to come back to his clothing while we're talking yes. about fashion. Um, you know, I, as you were saying regarding the patterns, I feel like there is a deep significance to it. And as you said, it, it, it feels... I feel that there might be significance to it. And as you said, is reminiscent of some of the textiles created by... Uh, people from indigenous cultures and like many times you know those those sorts of patterns can be of deep importance to them i i don't know which one it is i like mm-hmm. that at the back uh the pattern seems to come up towards a point reminds me a little of the tower and the knife um but you know another example of like some patterns that could be important are like like the taboli dream weavers in the philippines they weave um what's called dinalak and usually they use red black and white fabric or threads and that's similar to the culture colors that uh, a Joe Pari. I went through Andrew Scott, Hot Priest, and then like had to land on <laughs> Joppery is wearing. And um, you know, it's believed that they weave these textiles, right? These are patterns that they find in their dreams, and that's why they're called dream weavers. So that's something that I, I'm thinking of. I don't think that's wh- what this fabric is, but it's something that I'm trying similar. to figure out. I'd love to know more, you know, Carolyn McCall, costume person, you know, we just talked to Andrew Scott about his man bun, obviously, a moment ago. <laughs> Carolyn, if you could tell us a little bit about Joppery's clothing, please do. I like that he does call himself Joppery, though, and not John Perry or Stanislaus Grumman. It's like a little a little packaging of all of his experiences, the who he was before and who he's become yes. now. It's an interesting I embracing. Think 
there's also a sense that he like in this episode, the way he speaks, there's a sense of him basically saying like, you know, I was regretful for a while, Lee Scoresby, but I learned I can't go back. So I had to keep going, learn yeah. more, you know, and you I think that's on. present in his look as well. Uh, and he wears a <laughs> nice mean bun? pair of jeans, you know, he wears a mean pair of jeans. That man. I'm like, I can see why they call him hot priest now. Yeah. We get our first look in the Tour de Angeli as Will and Lyra enter the tower. It's so beautiful, so symmetrical. Everything is evenly drawn, and I think it really represents that symmetry of how cutting open a hole into the world and creating a window and closing it after that balance of yin and yang. Candles, statues, windows, archways, tables, candelabras, they all match perfectly. And when we ascend the stairs, the windows, those interlocking windows as we discussed earlier, uh... From the inside, they have a pattern of like six petals almost, right? And they let light flow through them. And as you watch Will and Lyra walk upwards and ascend, it makes the light coming through those petals look like dust. Look just like the dust we saw during when Zephania was narrating even. It looks like floating dust in the air as they climb. I'm going to have to look back at that again. That's very cool. There's a lot of... There's a lot of detail just in the design of Chittagatse in general, I think, and, mm. and love put into it. And, you know, like, another thing is towards the end of the episode is Mr. Paradisi's dying, the sconces, like, on the walls. They cast light in that darkness on a way that kind of evokes the dual angel wings. And there's just yes. so much detail in everything, like, in this tower. I really love their use of light. We're going to talk about that more, too, with a couple other characters. Mm. Very fun. Speaking of other characters, we're coming back to these other characters, Lee and Joppery, <laughs> once more. We're discussing the knife. Joppery is explaining that the two forces are lining up to fight, but for good to triumph, we need the knife. And Joppery wants the knife to go to Azrael, but Scoresby, unlike his performance to Mrs. Coulter in episode, does not actually like Azrael nor trust him, especially after he abandoned his daughter, which, oh, that's an interesting story about child abandonment, Joppery tells him. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lee, Lee's like, I would, that's awful, how could you ever do it? Just like Marisa had to sit through, right, with the magisterium as they mm. spoke about unnatural creatures abandoning their children. Uh, and Joppery's like, oops, I did that. And you can see the pain on his face, right? As yeah. Lee is explaining, like, I would treat Lyra like she was my own daughter and better than that. You can see his face. There's a little pain there. Uh, they're really doing well with how they're establishing this story. And I think I'm really going to have a very emotional reaction. So we'll talk about it as it happens, as the plot unravels. But speaking of being sad, as we often are, we'll have much more time for that in the next episodes. We go to someone who the clock is running out on, Lee. He is so strong in his convictions, and I'm, like, so proud, right? Because you see him as this mouthy young guy in Once Upon a Time in the North, and he would just go where the money took him. And then you see him as an older gentleman and Serafina Pecola telling him, Lee, your heart's not in the right place, you know? Like, this is why we're fighting for this thing. And now look at him. Now he's answering a call from a shaman, from having faith joining in with the witches and taking a stand against all that is bad in this world and any world connected to it, whether he's seen it yet or not. I, uh, I just am really glad. I'm proud. Real proud of him. That's all. I just worry about that guy, you know? I mean, you should be worried about him. <laughs> no reason. No reason whatsoever. Um, I thought it was so funny that he did twist that knife with Mrs. Coulter last episode that we mm-hmm. find out this ep- episode that he's like 
No, yeah, fuck that he guy. Was... Yeah, he was actually <laughs> just saying that shit to like troll Mrs. Coulter and talking up her ex-boyfriend, Lord Asriel. Uh, I love that. Great, great follow-up. And I kind of feel like there's a bit of meta-commentary here on the emotional response people have towards Lord Asriel. As you all know, we don't have... I think very positive feelings towards Lord Azrael. We're like, what the fuck, dude? And <laughs> that's to put it lightly. Yeah. And Joffrey points out there, he's like, you know, you don't have to like him to acknowledge that the work that he's doing is important. I'm like, interesting. But this exchange, and it comes up, Lord Azrael comes up a lot throughout this episode, right? When he's only been mentioned maybe like once in the past few episodes and very much in passing. Uh, but he comes up here, he comes up again. With Lord Boreal talking about his inferiority complex towards Lord Asriel. But, I mean, Lord Boreal is kind of right. But also, you know, Joffrey's also gone through the windows, too. Anyways, there he's right. <laughs> Again, don't love Lord Asriel. Uh, but the witches also talk about him as well and find him. It makes me think that the bottle episode that we were discussing that James McAvoy wasn't able to film because a pandemic happened. Um... <laughs> would have come either right before this episode or right after, especially, like, we have all this stuff explaining the specters and the knife, and I kind of wonder if the Zephania voiceover is a... I think it works really well, but it, but knowing that there was a bottle episode and that it got cut and all the mention of Lord Asriel here makes me wonder, like, would they have worked in that explanation into the bottle episode instead of doing this narration, and that was the workaround for it. That's interesting. I could see that being a thing, but I feel like it was planned because, as we'll get to in this episode, it's 100% Zophania's voice that is part of the cave, coming out of the cave later. And mm-hmm. also, they opened the season with Zophania. So That's true. I, I think they were definitely planning to bring Zophania in early on, especially I think that the Azriel Bottle episode was going to show Zophania, and that's what I think is actually uh. missing, is that the Azriel Bottle episode was going to show the kingdom and show maybe the leaders ahead of time and bring us a little into season, or series three, sorry, bring us into series three a little ahead of time and give us kind of a look at the war council coming and joining, because we know we're getting angels this season, right? We know what happens when Will goes off and he has to find Lyra and he gets paired up with Baruch and Balthamos. And I I just think that they were going to try to pull it up a little ahead of time. And that bottle episode was going to get us caught up for series three. That makes sense. I I just think it would have happened around these. That's why they keep bringing him Mm. up. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And like the the scene of Angelica watching her father get attacked by specters in the narration. I feel like that could have happened in the bottle episode and been used in there. You know? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I definitely think that we were going to see Tulio Asriel crossover. And even here, you know, uh, Giacomo Paradisi tells them at some point that he knows demons, right? So I imagine yeah. it involves Asriel. I'm, I'm imagining he's met Asriel's demon and Asriel. Yeah, or, or it has traveled in general because he said mm-hmm. people. So I, I love that idea that he says that. And before then, though, Lyra and Will, they do ascend the tower. And then there is that... St- brief struggle as we all know and again um they appear out of a window or a hole in the floor and find Giacomo Paradisi finally the bearer of the knife and then Tulia wanders the tower we have no reveal as to his relation yet to Angelica and Paula and he swings around wildly with the knife and attacks Will there's an immense struggle by the window where both of them are almost goners 
Then we have a slow-mo shot of the knife cutting the stone angel to show its power against solids. It's pretty great, actually. And then Tulio, this is not so great, kicks Pan. And it hurts both Pan and Lyra. And like It was awful. It was like a gut reaction. And that's set up really well because we then get the moment later where Pan is super sweet to Will when he's, you know, freaking out, losing blood, yada yada. And it's kind of these exact opposite setups to explain the taboo of touching someone else's demon. We also get a good shot of the stained glass, finally, that I've been trying to strain and understand what it says. Uh, and this is not, this one is not me wasting my time. It reads, Dormi Kongli Anjali, Sleep with Angels. Yes. And so that will come back for us with Mr. Paradisi, Mr. Paradisi. in a while, sadly. Yes, it does. And so I do love that Pan tells Lyra to help Will and the choreography. I, I like this fight scene, okay? And it did a great job of showing that risk that Lyra is taking in trying to help Will fight for this scene and also what you were saying by drawing attention to Tulio kicking Pan I'm like how can you kick Pan he's so chubby and fluffy it's so mean and he's so cute and I mean I think about it I'm like I guess this is a bunch of kids who like beat up cats so this is probably Mm -hmm. not a big deal for them and it I am very sad about Tulio's actor now, like, losing his scenes. Like, he got gets so little yeah. now in this episode. Maybe, like, a line. Poor Lewis. I know. Lewis McDougal, I hope you get lots and lots of good work. I hope someday we get a rendition of it somehow. Yeah. <sighs> News gets worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it. You know, we get those iconic moments, right? Will loses his two fingers, which are, of course, the mark of the bearer. And then... After a while, like when he realizes and un- unbandages and sees it, he faints and wakes up in Giacomo Paradisi's quarters. Tulio has run off, and he wakes. His the first thing that he sees is Pan's fluffy face, the best. And then there's Lyra also in his face, and there's muffled whispering of his name before he opens his eyes. But poof! Oh, it's so cute. The best thing you see when you wake up is Pan, the panda. But That was a great echo there from the beginning of the season. So do you remember when we first started the season and Lyra wakes up in the cave in shelter and she wakes up from hearing Roger say her name and it's like the first shot of the season. You hear Lyra, but it's really Pan, not Roger, but it sounds like Roger. Yes. Yes. Well, then here, everything is black and you hear Lyra go, Will? So what do you want to bet the very last frame of the season will be fade to black and then you hear Lou and Lloyd's voice go, Lyra? Rude. That would be so rude. I'm just saying. I'm just putting it out there now. I don't know. I am interested because you keep mentioning how they keep bringing him up. And obviously they want us to understand the weight of it and be ready for series three. And they have to keep bringing him up. So I think we might hear a couple more Roger things as we go along. Yeah, I love that they're doing that. Speaking of Pan being a red panda, we also got a tweet from Nick Porter, aka Some Guy One Ninety Two on Twitter, and I really want to call this out. It was very, very good and insightful. About uh, a few episodes ago, right, we saw Pan become a wolverine instead of a leopard to chase off the kids in his dark materials, and we talked about that might be a reference to Daphne's former role uh, in Logan. But Nick points out that they're increasingly making Pan's forms, members of the family, 
Mustaloidea. Mustaloidea. Showing a gradual closing in to Pan's final form. And then Nick explains that mustaloids include skunks, red pandas, raccoons, badgers, wolverines, martins, polecats, weasel spirits, ermines, and otters. So I thought that was really great great insight. Astute, indeed. Maybe you should have the podcast, Nick Porter. I grow weary of Eliana. (laughs) I'd sell her for a nickel. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't sell her for anything. She would sell me for I wouldn't sell you for plum brandy. Really? I I would, but Giacomo, Mr. Paradisi, Mr. Paradisi would give me plum brandy for free if I was Will Perry. If I was Will Perry. He does give Will plum brandy to help with the shock of losing the fingers and explains the mark of the bearer. Yes, and... You know, he also talks about the knife. He calls it Isahatra. Right. That's an interesting way. I pronounce it differently. Yep. I say it real different. I say Isahater and... Ah, uh, see, I'm an Isahater. You know, close enough. That's more or less, you know, what I, I say, I think. And to be fair, mm. I don't think I ever did find a good pronunciation guide online, so... You know, it's every man <laughs> for himself. Including Mr. Paradisi, as we learn. I assume this one's probably more correct than my pronunciation. Not J- Joppery, they're wrong. This one, they're probably Yeah, Joppery's right. wrong. That was wrong. This one, they're probably right. But you know what? I'm not going to change this one. So, cheers. Really? Interesting. I, I could change Isahedra. I can't change. I'll uh... do Joppery for this. Anyways. We are back to him, though. He explains that he left his family behind in hopes of bringing a better world for them. Uh, he says it was a bad decision, probably, and that he tried to get back to them a few years before, but that the way he had entered disappeared. I don't think that's in the book, uh, exactly in those words that he tried to get home, but by then it was too late. I think it might be, but not quite in the words he used. And I really appreciate that, that they're highlighting that part of the conversation. I mean, this is a whole chapter, right? Like, this is a back and forth for an entire chapter, so... Having an intercut across the episode was great. The journey there, getting here, having the conversation. And there were just really significant bits that I think are being done well about his love for Elaine and how he feels about Will. And he's wearing his wedding ring still. Yes. And that that showed quite clearly in the trailer. There's a close-up on his hand. I think that has that. Mm-hmm. With like a feather. And I, he does discuss this in the books. Not exactly those okay. words. But he talks about like... I mean, nobody goes on a fucking expedition not thinking that they're going to come back, right? Not necessarily. And he tried to go back, but it wasn't that the window disappeared. Like, they couldn't find it again, you know? Yeah. Well, he had journeyed on, became a shaman, even discovered the part of himself he had no clue existed. The female side of himself, which he says is changeable. Very interesting. Very fascinating. I'm glad Jopari has become one with himself out here in this wilderness house. He convinces Lee that this would this would save free will. Yes, free will. Uh, and wow. leave a better world for his son and other children to exist in. Lee finally is like, all right, I'll take you where you need to go as long as you can guarantee Lyra's protection under the knife's bearer. <laughs> and Jopari's like, yes, sure. Lyra will be under the bearer's protection, but the bearer will have his own tasks that could put this girl in grave danger. And he says that he cannot speak for the bearer's character. 
I love I love this storytelling device. I'm a sucker for this trope, right? Like that somehow it's his son that's the chosen one and he has no clue that his son is going to be the bearer, right? And even a bit before, he actually infantilizes his son. He's like, I want to leave him a better world, you know, my kid. But it's like, your son's not a kid anymore. Your son's about to be a man. Your son just lost two fingers out there. He's been dealing with the world's harshness, you know, since a little after you left, man. Uh, It it makes what comes next in this plot that much more of a nasty shock, you know, especially because we know Andrew Scott can act. He does act very well. He's so different from the hot priest that he plays. So I'm just like, wow, what range? It does really hammer that home, especially when he sees Will, right, in the books. And I'm sure we'll see it there. He'll be like, shit, what have I done? Like, he's so young. I mean, he is really young. And I'm I'm ancient. And <coughs> Lee and Joppery, right, they load up. Grumman uses his shaman powers to summon a wind to move them. And at first, like... Hester's giving him shit. She's like, nothing's happening. And then it starts happening. But as you were saying, you know, I love that they've set up both Lee and Grumman's motivations as fighting for their children, biological or otherwise, and their children are in love. The knife bearer <laughs> and Lyra are in love. And Sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize ever for the way you are. Oh, it's so important to me, to everyone, to the world. <sighs> Personally. Yes, it's coming through in this episode. And uh, anyways, amazing. Lee is, of course, saying a lot of these things and trying to help Lyra in a much more straightforward way, right? He's trying to find aid for Lyra, whereas Joppery is trying to do it in the best way that he knows how, not being able to get back to his family and creating slash leaving a better world, plural, for his son. And I think it's it's a motivation for many parents, right? I hear it a lot uh, from people you know, in my line of work, parents saying that they want a better world for their children than the one that they grew up in. And that ends up being Mrs. Coulter and Asriel's motivations at the very end of the story, too. And I love that you kind of have this, like, twofold dramatic irony where Lee and Joppery, they think that their goals are aligned in protecting their children. And then turns out they later on think that they're unaligned because Joppery's like, no, I gotta put the bearer first. But they are aligned, in fact, because they are in love Lyra and Will <sighs> together. Yeah. She's already under his protection. I know, and he's under hers because <clears throat> Mr. Paradisi calls her wise, and I'm like, I don't know about that quite yet, but <laughs> <laughs> I love that girl. I don't know, and I do think that there's something interesting going on that's really complex, right? In like that, John Terry says he made a mistake thinking that his work was at first more important than losing his family over it. That's, I think, a little different from the books. But in order to play his part in making the world better for his son, he does have to be apart from him. The part that he's playing as a shaman and working on all of this and with Lee protecting Lyra. Like, Mm -hmm. to have done all that, he has to be apart from his family in this other world and love his son and his wife from afar. And then that just makes me think... In a very sad way now. No, stop! Don't say it. Why would you say this? I didn't even realize I was leading up to it like that when I kept cheering about (laughs) Will and Lyra, and I was like, "What the fuck have I done?" Yeah, there's more in this episode that does that too. So just shut your mouth, shut your gab. Jesus, I done. Okay, back in the tower with Mister Paradisi. He gives us the backstory. He gives us the backstory on the knife, and he starts to teach Will how to use it, 
to open windows into the fabric of reality. We learn of both sides of the knife, and Lyra comments on recognizing the magnesium alloy from the Mm. demon cages, which I was very excited about, that it's canon. The blade in the guillotine is made of that same metal alloy, and we didn't actually get this part of the speech from Ruta this season at the Witches' Council earlier on, but it stands out here that she had come and told the witches that they only know the North. The churches in the South are doing the same thing. They're cutting sexual organs of boys and girls with knives so they can't feel, and that they do that. They control, destroy, obliterate every good feeling. And the alloy of the knife, it's obvious that that alloy, it's interesting that she's seeing it here in this knife because it's reminiscent that, like, that wasn't created with ill intent necessarily. That alloy was something that could help with probably modern day medicine, kitchen work, cleaning, medical, etc., Could have made new joints for me, is what I'm saying. You know, like, I could have a robo-hit by now. But someone got a hold of it and created part of this knife. And later, someone got a hold of it, harnessed that power, and created a blade to sever people from their souls. This is technology that fell into the wrong hands. The very discussion happening in Mary Malone's scenes. Visually, I do want to add, by the way, that the knife looks amazing the the one side has like these scales almost and the other side is super smooth and it's just so interesting good job to their prop guy whoever he may be never heard of him no one knows <laughs> no one he knows. knows who he is <laughs> no one knows. uh yeah that's a that's a great point uh regarding uh the cutting and that it could have been used for something good and you know Allegedly, Asriel used it for something good, and I'm like, but did he, considering that everyone else was like, there's less flashy ways? Anyways, uh, coming back to the design of the knife and uh, that of the tower, that twist of lines, I also really love it, and it, it calls to mind several things, right? Like, you were discussing earlier that overlapping circles pattern on the windows of the Tori Angeli, feeling like the overlapping and crossing between worlds. And I feel like that's something that we see with the way that the knife is designed. I'll come back to that in a second. But the twist in the knife and the tower spire, I think, really gives it this sense of movement and dynamism, especially in the spire with multiple twists. And we know that the knife has its own will, which I didn't come up with this pun. (laughs) Philip Pullman did. I I will. (laughs) It's not my fault. It really isn't. And the movement in like the curves of the knife helps give it that sense. It also feels like it's bringing and honing all of its power to this one point at the end. But also that single twist reminds me a little of the Mobius strip, which is, it has that surface of only one side, infinite. And you might recognize it as that ring with a single half twist in it. Mm -hmm. And it's an idea that's played again with MC Escher's prints. He, He brings that idea into there. But also seeing how the worlds are symbolized throughout the series, you know, as these little strings between them. And we see them often as the lines. That's how the show has been depicting them, these lines side by side. Which is likely harkening back to the string theory ideas of a multiverse, which I do think Philip Pullman was, was probably inspired by. The structure of the knife and the twist in it kind of like breaks that, right? It's, it's that idea of like crossing the lines over into another world on that yes. knife it's it's a really really simple but beautiful way that they've evoked it i love that the knife isn't like super flashy you know yeah but the details up close are still really elegant it's very subtle 
<laughs> I, I, I can't tell if I'm joking or not. Uh, I hope you figure it out before I fire you. <laughs> Will has a hard time focusing through all of this pain, and he's getting kind of easily frustrated at failing at the knife. So Lyra helps him, she encourages him, and Pan also comes out for some encouragement, leaning up and pushing his head against Will's hand to comfort him. Lyra totally freaks out at first, explaining, this is, this is taboo, but Pan's like, it was my fault, not Will's, I really wanted to. Uh, and it was, ugh, oh my god, true love. Uh, and Lyra is the dust fairy, right? Because right after this, she's like, she goes around telling people they're special, right? And she's like, you're special, Will, and I'm going to teach you right now how to be zen, how I interact with dust, because I'm assuming that's what you need to be doing here. You need to mirror me, so just, you know, embrace your pain. Here's some advice. Accept the pain, master the knife, and we'll go back to training, buddy. And he does. Yeah. Yes, and it is a beautiful moment, and I do think it's great that they highlighted that it's taboo and that they brought it up earlier in that first meeting when yeah. Will's about to touch Pan. So the fact that it happens here and they both kind of know now, mm-hmm. great touch. The witches regroup. There are hundreds of witches from the Lubana tribe who died at the Magisterium's hand. And Serafina tells Ruta that she needs her for what happens next. And Serafina knows where Lyra is and she needs Ruta's help to find the girl and strike back at the Magisterium. They come to an agreement that Ruta plans to get Azriel after they find Lyra because she's like, he's got to come back and finish what he started with the Magisterium because fuck this shit. You know, the last couple episodes, people have kept repeating, no one can control the weather. And Ruta mentions even the rains they called couldn't put out the fires at Lake Mm. Lubana. So another mention, now it's not just our shaman, Jopari, but we also have the witches who can control weather. That's awesome. Uh, So they must have called a spell to call a storm. And that, of course, ties in with that whole grave speech on how they're unnatural heretics and blah, blah, blah. But I just found that very interesting to follow up on. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, Chopper had to, yeah, learn it somewhere. Yeah. And only Jesus makes it rain. He stills the rain, etc. Yep. We always give props to Ruth, though, for her subtle performances, but I really want to give some props here to Jade Anuka. Mm-hmm. She does a wonderful job in this scene. She's, like, holding herself with all of this strength and this, like, sorrow and guilt about what happened to her tribe. It's, like, all there on her face and in her body language, and it's just... that There's a mixture of emotions, and it's delivered really well. So, great job to her. I love that. We cut back into knife training. Oh! <laughs> Hired! 401k, salary. Uh, okay, Mr. Paradisi says, finally, as we get into the knife training, he says, Now you must learn to close. Sheath the knife. For this, you must put your very soul into your fingertips. And I'm sorry, but there was absolutely nothing else I could think about than when Mr. Paradisi says, Now you must learn to close. I had immediate whiplash trauma about the amber spyglass because now you must learn to close makes me think about the end and closing all the windows and him being closed on the other side. And like, Will and Lyra have to learn that far too soon. And even the way Will looks at him when he says, now you must learn to close. I just want to rip my heart out, chop it up, maybe just 
stir fry it on the stove. I don't know, feed it to someone and make their life better because I don't need it. I'm in pain and all I can think about is their ending. So that's my sadness. It is so painful. Like, I didn't even think about that moment. But, like, in this scene, right, when Will is learning and getting his training, Lyra's, like, watching him and looking over him. Like, and it's called out that she's watching him. And there's, like, almost a sense of pride, but also, like, fascination. Right? There's just so much there. And then, like, when Will, like, kind of, like, gets it and stuff, he looks back at Lyra He's going to look back at her from a window at one point and close it. And he's going to be on the other side, Eliana. And she's going to be on the other side. And they're not going to be on the same side. And they're not going to be together forever. And I don't. What's the point? What's the point? What's the point of any of it? That is the point. But at the same time, but why? And then like. (sighs) So the Amber Spyglass in Series 3 are going to be really fun to listen to Girls Gone Canon during. And I hope you're excited and I hope you're happy with yourselves. God damn it. Yeah, I almost cried talking about it during one episode, Ugh. which, as you know, is not my thing for this podcast. Chloe's thing, not mine. I don't cry. I've never cried in my life. Will learns the rules of the knife. Don't hmm. talk about the knife. No, wait, sorry. <laughs> Wrong series. Don't open a window without closing it after. Don't let anyone else hold it. Don't use it for shitty reasons like buttering bread. <laughs> and don't boast a knife. I mean, it's gonna fuck up your bread. Yeah. Okay. And your counter. And yeah. your PV. And, and your, your J. Plate. Uh, most, probably you. You'll cut your finger off, you know. You'll probably. shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> Jacomo leaves them and he's like, I need some privacy in my final times. And Interestingly enough, in The Subtle Knife, Will is the one who's urging Lyra, like, Lyra, we have to leave him. Lyra's like, no, we have to stay here. They changed it and switched it up, and Lyra actually is urging him, which I actually really like because it was very much the mentor and mentee relationship, right? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Giacomo, like, holds Will's face, and there's a connection. Yeah. So... Another thing is Candid59 pointed out in these scenes with Giacomo that she thought of me from previous episodes just yelling, Mr. Paradisi! And I do want you all to know that that is in fact an accurate way to imagine me watching this episode. I did indeed keep squealing and my partner must have been like, what is going on? Because I kept going, Mr. Paradisi! Mr. Paradisi! We were also doing that here. I just want you to know for you. I'm glad. Yep. It's the only all we could think it. about was you. It's the only way to... Oh, I thought you meant you were also yelling, Mr. Paradisi. Oh, no, we were. We were. For you, though. Like, we were thinking oh, yeah. of you. Specifically how you yell it. Because it's, the only it's way you as Lyra, first of all. Like, it's you <laughs> reading Lyra, because Lyra calls him Mr. Paradisi. Mr. Paradisi. Oh. Uh, Mr. Boreal. I say that a different way now, ever since this show. <laughs> oh, my God, Mr. Boreal. Oh, wait, wrong. Fuck. I guess that's not how we're supposed to say it in the scene because he's super like creepy. But yeah, he is not a sexy guy to no, me in the scene. I am not turned not. on by him here. He is discussing Lyra and different worlds with Mrs. Coulter in this scene. Yes, he reveals that Lyra is in the other world, a different Oxford, and that he actually has her trapped, kinda, allegedly, and. Mrs. Coulter reminds Lord Boreal that Lyra is in fact very good at getting out of traps and Lord Boreal won't tell her how. Mrs. Coulter agrees to go with him to find Lyra and I love when she's just like, so you don't have her. 
It's so good. So you don't have her at all. You're just wasting my time. The entire scene is set really interestingly. It's a, it's a fancy restaurant. He seats her, right? So that specifically keeps the power in his court. He specifically has his hand on the small of her back while seating her, showing her that he's remaining in control, remaining in power. And his information of having Lyra and refusing to admit how he has her is again him withholding information to keep that position of power over Mrs. Coulter because if she knew that he had the alethiometer then she'd just get the alethiometer and get Lyra with the alethiometer she'd just wait for her and then grab her uh it it wouldn't work quite as well but she'd figure it out I'm just saying she's a crafty lady she doesn't need Boreo and she constantly has this upper hand over him usually right like she's always the one with all the knowledge And you can tell throughout the scene that she's very uncomfortable. She does not want to have to be getting dinner with this man or making a deal with him to get her daughter, but she is. He calls Lyra a gift from him to her, and his demon slides along toward her hand with his hand touching hers, and it's implied the demon's going to keep slithering. So this is also exploring that opposite side of the taboo we talked about with Will and Lyra, with Tulio kicking Pan and Pan rubbing on Will. She has her best fake smile plastered on. She tells him, well, take me to another world then, Carlo, which is, of course, it's a euphemism, right? That's a euphemism for sex, but also for walking through another world, which is what they do in their next scene together. But it's also implied that Coulter probably is having to put out in order to get her daughter back. It's fairly obvious she doesn't want to be at dinner with him. She doesn't want to be having to touch him and drink wine with him and have his demon slither along her. And it's very obvious from the familiarity and the way they're speaking to each other with first name terms, there might be things happening off the screen between these two adults. Uh, She's playing the game though, right? Like she is doing what she can to get her daughter is very obvious and This is a game that I think we're pretty apparently, we see that Coulter's had to play to stay in power, have certain sanctions and protections, and manipulate the right people to get what she wants. And regarding the demons, you pointed out that it feels like he's slithering, and during that whole time, you can tell Mrs. Coulter doesn't want it because she's gripping her own demon Mm -hmm. under the table um, to sort of just, like, keep her cool during it, but it... It is interesting. I wonder what the dynamic is between them. In the books, they were former lovers. Mm-hmm. But it feels here like he's trying to seduce her for the first time or something. It and feels it, obviously kind that of happens like with that, but also, lovers. like, it does feel just kind of like, so we're going to keep our fun game and charade going yeah. if you want your daughter. And he's yeah. been making very casual snide threats this whole season series. This whole series, he's been making these snide threats and comments about Lyra. You know, has her demon settled yet? It's all been very, like, playing, like, very semi-sexual and, you know, gross. So uh, I think it's set up for a very obvious reason that, and I don't know if they're keeping that canon here, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were, of course, once more hooking up off screen. Yeah. He does such an interesting boreal. Way more interesting than in the books. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's, writ- it's written well for him, too. And then we go back to Lyra and Will. They are watching the tower as specters float around the tower, and Terrence Stamp gets his money's worth as he drinks poison just in time before the specters get him. Good for them. You know what? They used a famous actor exactly how you should for a guest episode. And this is, of course, where Sleep with Angels comes to light. Dormi Kong Lee Gangeli, uh, 
right here you see that beautiful stained glass and that phrase stretched out across it as he takes the poison and right before the specter comes to get him his eyes shut what a what a quick mentor in mentor out it worked yeah i kind of wonder if the in those windows the two angels on either side are supposed to make us think of baruch and baltamos oh yeah they are absolutely guardian angels um speaking of terence stamp i forgot who pointed this out on twitter when i saw it but i know that twitagaze has pointed it out many times that terence stamp played lord asriel in like the radio productions of his dark materials so very interesting very fun to have him come in for this guest role and that of course i'm very sad watching mr paradisi <laughs> die I, I don't know why i just love this minor character so much and like even in the books and i do think it's interesting that what we get here with the way that he dies in the specters work is that the specters fly up to the tower because in the books they cannot fly until mrs coulter like does something that kind of teaches them to do so like frees them from the ground or whatever and I don't know if the show is like doing this to simplify that and cut out some steps or like because when the witches cross over for the first time in the books, like it was really significant that the specters couldn't reach them when they were flying. They were like kind of safe if both they and their demons stayed in the air until again, Mrs. Coulter like changed the game. So I think that's really interesting. Huh. I, I didn't really think about what that meant yet, because I do assume that we're going to get some good Spectre stuff against the Witchers in the episodes to come, right? Probably for Coulter's Last Stand against the Witches, etc. Uh, we'll probably get a good eye to see what happens at the camp, right? Yeah, so I, I don't while know what they're is. off, I'm guessing. So I'm, I'm sure we'll see part of it, but that is interesting that uh, she's the one that really gave them the, the leave in the books and here not so much. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. We head over to Marisa and Carlo at the Orangerie Between Worlds. The Orangerie is, of course, the same one they filmed at in Bristol in Series 1. This year it looks much more grim, though, as these stakes get raised. Mrs. Coulter walks through a window, looking wary of it. It looks like it's her first time, though I don't know if I believe that. Her outfit is not quite as tight here in the chest and in the waist as her previous outfits, She's wearing her classic blue, Lyra blue, Coulter blue here, which suggests her plot moving forward is completely revolving around finding Lyra. And it's not quite as buttoned in, this look. Her hat has an air of exploring. She's not wearing black high heels uh, for once. Uh, she's wearing, I want to say, isn't it scaly shoes? It looks almost like scaly. And she has her little pin that represents almost like matter and stars, dust, if you will. Yeah, I thought that her clothes felt very significant. Um, I think it's interesting that you said that she's doing this Lyra blue. You know, it feels like, in a way, it was almost her blue sometimes before, mm -hmm. before Lyra did. And, like, she can finally be herself once leaving the Magisterium as well. And, I mean, Lyra's clothes are interesting this episode. She has this beautiful, like, cute little stitching along the collar of her sweater. Mm -hmm. And... It comes twice in two different colors and feels like the lines. It, it reminds me a lot of the work that the lines have been doing in the opening sequence and, and with the computers converging. But I, I, as you were saying, her accessories feel really pointed, like the, the star brooch. I was thinking of it not just as stars. Uh, I was thinking of it, I, I didn't think of the dust thing at all, but, um, you know, like she's heading north towards that window, the North Star, but also like 
the Morning Star, Lucifer, mm-hmm. and like who was one of the core inspirations for Azrael's character and the side that she's mm-hmm. gonna pick. And as you were saying with her heels, yeah, it does look scaly. I want to say it's snakeskin. Hmm. I don't know, <laughs> but I want to say it's snakeskin heels, which is really interesting considering what happens soon or next for Boreal. Womp womp. Sorry, Carlo. These are bloody shoes. <sighs> Can't wait. She steps into Chitigatse in these shoes with Boreal following behind her, telling her, stay with me. And they gaze at the Torre dell'Angeli coming out of the door to the artwork of Chitigatse on the wall. And we get the spectacular shot that is absolutely beautiful, haunting, like spectacular. I want to put it on one perfect shot online. Mm. Like it is the best of Coulter in front of the Chitigatse artwork, the mural on the wall with the red roses and the tower looming in the background. And she sees a specter coiling in the air and stares pretty much through it and walks away. What a chilling shot. Just gorgeous. Even the light in this, uh, the light refracts across her, so most of her is in darkness and shadow, but there's a slash of light across her torso, almost saying, is there still some light in there? Is there still some good in there? Uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. It is. It was a It was a really well done shot, and yeah, I don't know if like the, the mural was peeling off of what angels beneath it. Mm-hmm. It looked like Gosh, angelic angels. pattern in it, yeah. Yeah. So, it was fantastic, and then she just, yes, goes through. That's the last we see of her this episode. Yes, because we then bust over to Tulio, who, sad poor Tulio, the reason the specter was the focus is because Tulio meets his yes. fate. He bangs at the door for Angelica and Paula, but cannot get in. Yeah, sad again for Lewis's moments, but also sad in this moment that, uh, the children can't hear him. He's banging to try to get in. It kind of feels like this gap, right, he, between the worlds of adulthood and childhood, and that he can't go back. He can't re-enter that child's world. Mm-hmm. Locked says, out. Lyra and Will will be locked out of each other's worlds. Uh, <sighs> Just like all the uh, the spirits are locked out of heaven. Yeah. Well. Well. Will is washing off the dust in a bath. He got a little dusty during all of this, so he, and the blood also, uh, he's recovering though in a bath, and Lyra enters the bath backwards, a la series one, when Roger entered backwards with towels for her. She brings towels, she apologizes as well. She's really sorry about everything that happened here, and then she explains that the alethiometer told her Will was important before she lost it, and that he had something important to do here in Chitigatse. She asks what Will wants to do next, and he says they need to pull a heist for the alethiometer and not give up the subtle knife. Also, Pan looked. Oh, he did. And uh, I love it. I love slutty little Pan throughout this whole episode. He's a little harlot. Oh my god. I love it. I love it. I'm so glad he looked. (laughs) Speaking of flirting, the outro of that scene. Good night, Will Perry, bearer of the knife. Good night, oh Lyra Silvertongue. Oh my god, make out already. I can't their, believe we have to wait one whole series. Their hearts were like probably beating so hard in that scene. Yeah, absolutely. Young absolutely. Love. Young love. Ah, to be young and have to save all of destiny. And then have to, you know, be torn from your one true love for the rest of your life. Free will. Truly. Lee and Joppery sail off. <laughs> They find his balloon in the woods still, and then up they go. Different movie, up. 
Mm-hmm. Hester is bitching again, as we said, about Jobbery's speed, and he surprises them by calling Win. I'm now realizing is Hester bitching about them because they made that uh, point at them towards the beginning yes. of the sign Couture. Yes. It, saying uh, Katora said, like, oh, I thought you, you're more turtle than hair or whatever is what she said, right? Mm-hmm. And they make, that. I don't remember the exact remark, but it's basically that in return. It was great. Yes. Uh-huh. Hester's like, yeah, don't talk shit. Don't talk shit. Saying Katora, you're going to get hit. Saying Katora's like, bitch, I've severed. Bitch, what of it? I can go where I want. Yeah, and they're <laughs> like, here's the wind. What do you want? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Ospreys probably eat rabbits. Hester, you want to go? <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, fuck with Fleabag. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we did actually did get this really that. interesting note from our friend Fred. Uh, I wanted to bring this up yes. about the composition of Lee Scoresby's Western genre. Uh, his theme music very clearly references Enrico Morricone's com- composition, The Ecstasy of Gold, from the Western, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And he left some links for us to compare the themes. Uh, very obviously at 25 seconds through the theme, through 55 seconds into Lee's theme. Can you hear kind of these similarities? We'll link them below. And we did actually discuss a little bit on some spaghetti westerns and westerns in general in our 21st Patreon special episode on Once Upon a Time in the North, the novella about Lee Scoresby when he was a bit younger. And we joke around a lot that it's his spaghetti western novella. But it's because it actually is. Pullman has a serious love for them. And if you listen to our Subtle Knife chapters 9 through 10 coverage, episode 13, we talked about how Lee is likely named for two people. William Scoresby, who was an Arctic explorer, and Lee Van Cleef, who starred in spaghetti westerns like For a Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So this completely checks out comparing these two themes. So I thought that was fun. Thanks for the email, Fred. And... Another fun tidbit is that, Elian, I'm going to blow your mind. Did you know there is a term called paella western? I did not. I did not. What is a paella western? It's westerns produced in Spain. That's, that's fantastic. Amazing. That's so great. Amazing. I didn't know that. The world's Had full to of awesome things. Um, <laughs> that That's blowing my mind. Fred's email like blew my mind when I saw that. I was like, holy shit. And I think I'm just also, like, especially excited. Like, it's such a great insight, especially because we're going to be thinking more about the music. And the music's just so good. Yes. So far. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much, Fred. We've gotten a lot of people have been sending, like, awesome stuff this week. Yeah, don't stop. Please keep sending us these great insights. It's helpful. Other things that are helpful. Mary Malone gets sent some things digitally, too, right? Because the cave gets an upgrade. Oh, my God. <laughs> It gets a voice, and it tells Mary to ask a question, and Mary learns that dust and dark matter are one and conscious, also that they're angels and that they've intervened in human evolution for one thing, the bad pussy. Oh my god. <laughs> it's not what it is, Eliana. It's vengeance. They intervened for vengeance. Justice and fire and blood. Uh, okay, in rewatching this, Eliana... I'm 100% sure, and I didn't think about it as it happened, but the angel speaking to her in question is Zavania. Yeah. It is Sophie Okaneto's voice. I like closed my eyes and listened, and I was like, I know that voice anywhere. And <laughs> I do. I do know Sophie Okaneto's voice. Again, Doctor Who. I was a Whovian. We discussed this at the top of the episode. Keep up. But you know how like 
in TV shows and in real life, I guess, we try to communicate with other worlds and aliens and shit. And, like, you get the radio waves of, like, is anyone out there? Yes. That's literally what's happening here. Like, through different worlds, the leader of the Angel Rebel Army has been straight up trying to get through to Mary Malone through the cave. After all this time. Holy badass. And it's just such a well set up scene. This scene is so good. It, I was I was freaking out because it was just perfect. It was a, the best translation of the book text. Uh, and during the shot alone, if you actually watch the shot, the computers that are surrounding Mary, the monitors that are to her left and to her right, the reflection of them are separated. One of the reflections is of the cave and it makes it have a white reflection on the back of the monitor. And the other reflection is dark and matte and just like a black reflection. So it looks like yin and yang are separating her with her in between them. Yes, it's so interesting. Really well shot. That's great. That's that's a great catching the um, composition of the scene. and uh, it Her is. caught between them. Or the balance between them, right? Talking mm-hmm. with those two energies. You need both, right? Yes. And uh, that's so great. And as you were saying, it's a it's a wonderful translation of the book. There's that line that I think we talked about quite a bit in when we covered the subtle knife and how angels work in terms of interacting with our world. And the delivery here was just uh, chef's kiss. It was just perfection. That It, it was the line of like, from what we are, spirit, from what we do matter, matter and spirit are one. And just that and, and the addition, right, of the vengeance at the end. Like, everything about the scene was so haunting and amazing. And it's a great structure in this episode in general. It follows the Tower of the Angels. And then you find out that, oh, wow, shit, angels are real. And it's there's just hints throughout the episode of, like, what the purpose of the knife might be. And that it comes together with this, like, the angels intervening in human evolution altogether is just... Yes, it's such a great structure. It's well brought together. And like, there's been an exploration of some of these themes that I don't know that I understood as well when I read the book that I now I'm going, oh, this connects to this. So I think it's a great way that they've adapted this exact scene from the book. And I also love the way the dust was coming off the screen as the angel spoke. I thought that was neat, too. Uh, Siri can't do that. Yeah, cannot. You know, today, Lauren Balf, who does all of the beautiful creative control of the music, put out lyrics to Mary Malone's theme music that uh, that is played behind a lot of this. And Eliana, if you want to do the honors, because as we've discussed, I cannot do Latin. It's not yeah. for me. Well, I did not study Latin either. I studied two other romance languages, again, that were neither of which were Latin. And so we, were, we are going to do the best we can. And uh, the, the lyrics posted by Lauren are In itinere te ducent Angeli Fortunum Invenius. So the rough translation of that is the road to the angels find fortune. Interesting. I thought that was great, especially because we know that Mary is about to set out on a road and find some fortune indeed. (sighs) The Malefa! Some beautiful culture. (gasps) The Malefa! Okay, okay. On track. So... Speaking of vengeance, the Magisterium is waiting at the tear in the sky, and they are attacked by witches who destroy the ships as they go. Serafina gets a nice close-up and gets to destroy some people real quick. 
this is vengeance, my friends. This is perfectly yes. connected to this last scene with what Zephania is narrating, right? And the idea of Zephania both opening this episode by narrating about the knife and opening a window for the viewer into this magical world and then closing the episode and closing this window with vengeance, showing the witches striking back at the magisterium who want to take all that is anything, right? They want to take free will away. This is what it's all about. It was a well-done episode, an amazing story. Any flaws that could have happened here paled in comparison to how good it was. That's how you do an adapted episode. Yeah, not that we're making points on anyone, but yes, absolutely. Fantastic structuring, as we've been saying. And it's also like an interesting comparison with the visuals, right, of the witches, they're flying, and the way that their dresses billow in the wind. And then, of course, how the specters look right them flying through the air and then this idea again of the angels with their vengeance and kind of feels like an angel of death thing going on and just so many good things going on and you know i'm hoping that we keep we keep this energy for the next episode you know it's been a strong season so far Mm -hmm. what do you think is going to happen you know as we move forward chloe Oh, speculating on the next episode. Spe- well, speculating. Mm, that didn't work the way I thought it was gonna. I'm gonna gloss right past that one. I think speculating on the next episode. We only have so much left to fit into episodes, so I know they're gonna make some adaptive choices, right? We've seen a little bit from both. There's been some previews, and also not just previews, but also from the layout of Boreal's house that. We're going to see something change there, I think. I think we're going to see something change with Lyra Coulter Will. Mm. They'll have a scene, something teased in the previews. Uh, I don't know. I just think we're going to get some different changes because before in that scene, it's just Will, Lyra, Boreal, and uh, Marisa are there and they don't really get the full extent of realizing Lyra's there. So I think something might change there. And not just that, but I also think that Coulter's going to maybe get her upper hand back. I don't think she can stay down for too long with the chips down. I don't know. Uh, Something's got to give. And obviously Boreal dies eventually. Yeah. I don't know if that happens this coming episode or the episode after or not. Uh, I'm interested in it. Um, You know, we discussed it in the trailer episodes, but I do think that it'll come out that Lord Boreal was the one harassing Will's mother, or at least I hope so. That was an interesting change from the books. And I think that it it would be really interesting I'm excited to hopefully see that come through with Will's character and how that changes their dynamic. I think that would be interesting, but I don't know. You know, there's a lot of things that could happen. And I I think you're right. I think that information has to come out. Yeah. Like, cause in the trailer we saw Will kind of like yelling at Lyra. He looks beat Mm -hmm. up. So it must've been, it's now, right? Cause he's beat Mm -hmm. up now. And I feel like it would be with this. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a couple other mysteries, right? Like uh, the witches. We have two witches. We have someone who was very prominent in this episode, which is Sasha Frost. And it turns out, if you pay attention to the actual credits at the end, Sasha Frost is credited with playing Raina Meaty, who was a queen of another clan in the books. She's only mentioned twice, first in The Subtle Knife, in Ruta conversation, saying she needs to consult with her. And then later in the third book, she shows up and she's burning some shit down. So... I don't think that she's playing Lena Felt here, obviously. She's credited as Raina Meaty. Remy Milner is credited as playing Lena Felt, who has the longer curly hair. And she, we might see that plot play out, as we mentioned, with Coulter torturing her. But I'm wondering what Raina Meaty's plot is going to be and if she is going to end up being Joe Pari, which 
Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it would make sense, right? But that that does make sense as to why she was accompanying Seraphina, right? Uh, to meet mm-hmm. Bafruda. It's like all the queens coming together and competing for this thing. So. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I hope she survives to burn some shit down. Yeah. And I guess we'll see, obviously, more Lee and Grumman. We've only got a few more Lee episodes coming up, so we have to get that next. Uh, there, Maybe it'll be like a buddy. That's another Western thing, right? Like buddy, like, buddy cop, traveling yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. You got the I shaman assume. and I'm you got the cowboy. Absolutely. The I medicine man and the cowboy. Mm. Yeehaw! Yeah. From the country of Texas and from a hole in the sky. The country of Texas. <gasps> I love that in this episode when he says country of Texas. I was like, <laughs> yes. God damn. I wonder if Joppery, like when he first came through and found that out, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Proud to be a Texan. Yeehaw. Uh, well, that's all from us Texans this week's this week, folks. Speaking of Texans, though, and, and Lee, I, I want to call out, we didn't say this at the beginning of the episode, but, you know, our friends at Her Dark Materials are interviewing Lin-Manuel Miranda about his yes. role as Lee. So please check that out. I think when this comes out, I'm, I don't know that they'll have extended their deadline. They did say get your questions for Lynn in by Monday, December 7th. So you might be able to get it in. Maybe not. Uh, maybe, maybe they are very nice. Maybe you'll be able to sneak your question in. Yeah, maybe, maybe. If you're if you're nice, hit him a message. I can't wait to listen to that. So we'll see you next week. Hopefully we'll get to listen to that by next week. Very excited. Thank you for tuning in. As always, if you enjoyed listening to us, make sure you take a chance and write us a message over at our email if you feel like it. Girlsgonecanon at gmail.com if you have any exciting thoughts. Uh, or... If you'd rather send us a tweet, you can do that at Girls Gone Canon. That is C-A-N-O-N. Yes. And of course, catch us here every week. You can find us on a number of different platforms, such as Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, where this is all hosted, Acast, Stitcher, Overcast, Amazon Podcasts, Pandora, iHeartRadio. We keep adding more, more and more (laughs) every time. Look it up, you'll find us. And if none of those work for you, you can always check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where patrons get a special episode every other month that is themed His Dark Materials for the Stranger Tier and Above, or A Song of Ice and Fire themed. This coming December episode will be with The Dust Podcast. Matt and Holly will join us to break apart some music from the series, and we cannot wait. Join us then. As always, I have been one of your hosts. Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-
I remember when we said we were going to make this our new intro and we, we did just it did. And just did it now here, right here. It's not this intro. is what the people want, Eliana. This is this what is, they want. This is a special moment. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. <sighs> Goodbye.